The prophets of the Old Testament would often use object lessons to communicate their messages. One of my favorites is found in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 4, where God instructs Ezekiel to write on a brick, Jerusalem, and then to build a wall around Jerusalem and to build siege ramps and to have a little army around the brick. It's kind of like G.I. Joes, he tells Ezekiel to play with. To play with some G.I. Joes as an illustration for Israel when everybody comes by and says, hey, what do you got there, Ezekiel? This is the invading army that's going to destroy Jerusalem. The prophets of old often would uh, do object lessons to communicate their message. Well, we see something similar here with the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us this tremendous object lesson to his disciples before he leaves and ultimately to us an object lesson that we would never forget. But this object lesson is found in the context of what we call the Gospel of John. And we have taken a lengthy break from the Gospel of John, so we should review just a little bit. John wrote this Gospel. He tells us why, which is always helpful when the author does that. He tells us in 2031... I write these things, and he's in that context talking about the signs that he wrote all throughout the Gospel of John. I write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you may have life in his name. So John writes to his audience so that they would see who Jesus is in all of his glory and splendor, and that they would believe. And ultimately, it's written for us. It's written that we would see and understand who Jesus is and that we would respond by believing. And we are going to get a whopper of an account this morning to see something of who Jesus is. This is the tail end of Jesus' ministry. And in a very real sense, you could summarize the Gospel of John uh, with John chapter 1 and verse 11 and 12 where it says, He came unto his own... And his own received him not. That's the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John. Jesus comes to the covenant people of Israel. He came to his own, but his own received him not. And then in verse 12, but to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's really chapters 13 through the rest of the book. And especially zeroing in on chapters 13 through 17 where Jesus now spends some time focused on his disciples, the 12 disciples, teaching them, instructing them, pouring into them before he's going to the cross this very week in which he's teaching them. And so this is the last week in the life of Jesus. And the Passover is on the horizon. And Jesus himself is that Lamb of God Passover who will be executed for the sins of the world. Let's pick up the account in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them (coughs) to the end. So John puts a time stamp on this event. It's before the Passover. The Passover was kind of like the 4th of July for the Israelites. This celebrated the great exodus from Egypt uh, when God brought the Hebrews out of Egypt through those 10 plagues. And the final climactic plague was the killing of every firstborn son unless you sacrificed a lamb and had a Passover meal and put the blood on the doorpost. And so that's the timestamp. And so that, that's the, I'm sorry, that's the holiday that was commemorated every year. It's kind of like springtime on our calendar in which they remembered this great exodus from Egypt. And so now Jesus is going to 
observe this ancient holiday with his disciples. And again, John is, is very intentional here because often the feasts in the Gospel of John have a correlation to Jesus' instruction. So it's quite natural that on this Passover feast, Jesus himself becomes the Passover lamb. The second part of verse 1, knowing, Jesus knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus now cognizant that his hour had come. And this is very important to understand because in, in this passage, he's going to talk about there's, there's several players who are working at odds against Jesus, Judas and the devil. But Jesus makes it clear, and John, as he records this about Jesus, that while the devil and Judas are working in opposition to Jesus and his plans, they're actually doing exactly what Jesus intends. In other words, everything is going according to plan. The clock is ticking. The hour has come. Jesus, as it were, is looking at his watch and saying, now it's time. I'm ready to be executed. And so, while on the one hand, again, there's these evil players who are plotting and conspiring against Jesus, all evil and wicked choices of men bow before the sovereign calendar of God. They do exactly as he pleases, while not denying the human responsibility of those agents involved, Judas, Satan, etc. They're doing exactly as God intends in his purposes. We say, I don't understand how that works out. Well, neither do I. I don't understand how the sovereign purposes of God work in and through the responsible choices of men, but the Bible clearly teaches it. And so this is what's happening here. The hour has come. Jesus is about to die. This is the week of his death. And so, I don't know, if you knew that you were going to be murdered within the next 24, 48 hours, what would you do? Order some pizza and wings, last meal, go to Cedar Point? I don't know, not now, but I mean, you know, if the weather was a little bit more proper, what would you do? Well, watch what Jesus does. Verse two, <coughs> during the supper... The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So again, here's this evil imposter. Here at the meal, Judas is there. And Satan is working behind the scenes in the heart of Judas, conspiring with the desires and intentions of Judas to work, work about the betrayal of Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. So again, here's this high Christology, Jesus, who's come from God. He is John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, if you rewinded all of creation back to the beginning and peered into eternity, you would see Jesus there with the Father from eternity past. He came from the Father, but now in space and time, he came into this world, but now he's going back to the Father. And this is what he does, verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. He got up from the supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, <coughs> he girded himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, a couple details I want to draw your attention to. First, if you're reading the New American Standard, 1995, or the Legacy Standard Bible, you will notice a star, various stars sprinkled through these verses. Next to God up, next to laid aside, uh, to the left of poured water. And what these stars indicate, um, or you may call it an asterisk, but I, I can never pronounce that word properly, so I'm just going to call it a star. 
where you see these stars, what, what the, the editors of these translations are doing is they're telling us this is the historical present tense in the Greek language in which, in which uh, John originally recorded here. You say, okay, it's all Greek to me, Matt. Well, let me explain just a little bit, okay? Authors, narrators, when they want to draw you into a scene, they would write about something that happened in the past as if it was happening in the present. In other words, they want to give you real play-by-play recording of what's happening. It's a difference between if you're talking about, let's say, the Browns football game. You know, Baker Mayfield, he had, I'm speaking in the past tense, he had dropped back and then he, uh, he faked a handoff uh, to Chubbs and then he threw the pass to fill in the blank, okay? So now I'm speaking in the past tense, okay? But if I was to give the present tense, if I was to speak of that in the present tense, Baker Mayfield drops back. He fakes the handoff to Chubbs. He throws the ball. It's completed. See, now I'm speaking in the present tense as if it's play-by-play, as if it's happening in that very moment. Okay, now you may object to the fact of Baker Mayfield completing a pass, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, is that the author wants you to feel like you're there watching Jesus do this. He intentionally wants to draw us into the scene. Okay, now we need to talk a little bit about some of the details of the scene here. Because notice it says Jesus got up from the supper. Jesus got up from the supper. Well, you, you read that, and usually when we think of the Last Supper here, okay, we think of the Leonardo da Vinci. I think it was da Vinci who did the Renaissance portrait of the Last Supper. I'm sure one of you classical conversation young people will correct me if I got that wrong. Please do. <laughs> but da Vinci's painting of the Last Supper, they're all sitting at a table, right? Erase that from your memory, okay? Because they weren't sitting at a table with legs on the table. If you were eating a meal in the ancient Near East, just as probably if you were eating a meal in the Middle East even today, you would be lying on the floor, okay? The table would be actually a mat in the middle of the room, and the food would be placed on the mat, and your head would be closest to the mat. You would be lying probably on your left side. You wouldn't be eating with your left hand. You would be eating with your right hand and laying on your left side. And so that's, that's the scene. That's what's going on here. I can remember some years ago being in Cameroon, Africa, and, and Cameroon is heavily influenced by Middle Eastern culture because it's blanketed by Islam and, uh, and that's how we ate. The, the, it was on the floor. You would sit around on the floor. And I remember one of the guys who was with us, uh, him putting his feet on the table, on the little mat. And the missionary saying, get your feet off the table, please. Okay. We're not, we're not accustomed to that kind of culture. But this was the culture of Jesus' day as it is the culture of Middle Eastern culture even today. So this is what's going on. Jesus then gets up. And then notice verse 4, he laid aside his garments. So he, he takes off his, his outer garments and he takes a towel. He puts the towel around his waist and he's pouring water in a basin. And the way in which you would do this, you would pour water uh, uh, you know, over the feet and, and there would be a basin underneath it and you would pour water and then you would take the towel and dry the feet of the person whose feet you're washing. So Jesus would have done this going around the table. Now, this was an important, a very important part of ancient Near Eastern culture. In fact, if you remember in Luke chapter 7, when the, the, that sinful woman, she, she cleans Jesus' hair with perfume. And she, she doesn't clean Jesus' hair. She's not a beautician. She cleans Jesus' feet with her hair uh, and perfume and you remember in the aftermath of that, Jesus talks about the, the common custom of the day. It, 
it was to wash Jesus' feet. But the Pharisee, of whom Jesus was eating, and there was a guest there, he didn't even wash Jesus' feet. He didn't offer anybody to wash Jesus' feet. But here, this woman did this, okay? The point being is it was customary. It was customary to wash the feet, to have a servant come and wash the feet of those guests. And this was, the rationale was because your feet in the ancient world, as people would wear open-toed sandals, not with socks. That's filthy, disgraceful to wear socks with sandals, just so you know. Open-toed, naked feet, sandals would pick up not only dirt, but they didn't have indoor plumbing, okay? And uh, they would have scavenger animals, dogs. So, you know, there'd be dog poo on the road. But also, again, they didn't have indoor plumbing. And so sometimes people would toss their waste out on the streets. And, you know, so not only be dog poo, but man-sized poo as well. And, you know, your feet get dirty, right? Your feet get dirty. And so... Even though if it was a holiday like this Passover, you may take a full bath before you go there. But on the way there, your feet would get dirty. And by the way, one more nugget here is that this business of foot washing, since feet were considered so filthy, so dirty, this was a task in which no Jewish male was allowed to partake of. Even if you were a servant, you were not allowed to wash another Jewish man's feet. This was a task that was reserved either for Gentiles or for women or for children. (coughs) And yet, the Lord Jesus himself abases himself and goes around and washes the feet, the nasty toe jam feet of his disciples. Verse 6. So he came to Simon Peter, good old Peter. But don't be too hard on Peter because were this interchange not to take place we probably would not know the significance of this symbolism of what Jesus is doing. He comes to Simon Peter, he says, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In, in, in the original here, it's emphatic. It's like, you, my feet here? No, 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 no. Lord, this, this can't happen. Peter understands the incongruity here. He understands this Jesus who he has declared at the end of chapter 6 of John's gospel, you are the Holy One of Israel, that this Jesus, if we believe what he says about himself, if we believe what all the sign miracles point to, that he is the eternal creator God in the flesh, you should not be washing my feet. It's inappropriate. It's hard for us to wrap our brains around this, right? I mean, think of a person very dignified in our culture, you know, abasing themselves and cleaning toilets or something like that. I mean, that's what's going on here. I remember some years ago uh, out at the Shepherds Conference in Los Angeles, they will sometimes have a... a, um, a shoe shining booth. And I remember uh, one of my friends went there and they shined up his shoes. And in the course of conversation with the person shining his shoes, he discovered that the person shining his shoes was a judge. I mean, imagine that, because it was often the, the members of, of Grace Community Church who helped serving there. But ima- a judge shining his shoes. That's impressive. That's something. You know, just if you were to multiply that times like a million, that's what's going on here. And this is why Peter says, no, no, this shouldn't be happening. But notice Jesus' response here in verse 7. 
Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. So Jesus says to Peter, okay, Peter, I, I understand. This seems weird. This seems odd. This maybe makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, but, but I want to tell you something here, Peter. You don't get it now, but you're going to get it later. You're going to understand it hereafter. And I believe what Jesus is referring to, after his death and resurrection, after what he does on the cross, then it will click to you, Peter. Then you'll understand. There'll be like this aha moment. Ah. So in other words, he's saying to Peter, you don't get it now, but Peter, just trust me. Just trust me, Peter. Close your mouth and just trust me. Verse 8, Peter doesn't trust him. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Literally, unto eternity you shall never wash my feet. This can never happen, Jesus. Absolutely never, ever, ever are you going to wash my feet. And and again, it's easy to pick on Peter here, but you know in Peter's mind, he's got to be thinking, you know, I've put my foot in my mouth a lot of times, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on this one, Jesus. And then the second part of verse 8, Jesus drops the hammer on Peter's big toe. <coughs> Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. What's going on here? Okay, so now, again, this is why I said, thank Peter for him him doing this here. Because we're beginning to get a window into what's going on here that there's something significant here in what Jesus is doing that is pointing to a greater reality. That what Jesus is doing here, Jesus is not OCD about personal hygiene, okay? You know, some people, you know, if they see, you know, a spot on somebody's shirt or something on their face, they're like the parent, you know, let me rub that off, you know, (laughs) as if that was hygienic, you know. I'd rather not have the spit rubbed all over my face. I'd rather have the crumbs still there. Jesus is not OCD about personal hygiene here. He, and we get a window into this here because he says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. This language of Jesus saying, you have no part with me, to have a part in something is to have an inheritance in something, to belong to something. Well, you say, what, what is Jesus talking about? Well, he tells us, He gives us windows into what this part is, like later on in the Gospel of John, just probably like 30 minutes later in the midst of his instruction in chapter 14. Remember this? Jesus says, trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not tell you. For I go and prepare a place for you And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also. That's Jesus' part. That's his inheritance. He's bringing people to heaven. So when he says to Peter, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you're not going to heaven. We begin to realize this foot washing business isn't just about personal hygiene. It's about what he's about to do on the cross. It's about what his greatest service towards sinners will be. Namely, his death, burial, and resurrection. This part that Jesus speaks of also is spelled out in in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 24, where Jesus prays, Father, talking, Jesus praying for his disciples, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays that all of his followers will get to heaven to see him in his robust glory for all eternity. That's his part. 
That's the part that he says to Peter, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And then notice verse nine, Simon Peter's response. Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Okay, okay, now I'm understanding a little bit more Jesus, Peter says, then I'm ready to take a shower. One commentator says, good old Peter, the only time he opened his mouth was to change feet. He takes one foot out, puts the other right back in. And so Jesus again asked to clarify. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. I'm sorry, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. But not all of you. You are clean. In other words, you've had the full washing, but your feet just need cleaned regularly. But not all of you has had this full washing. And obviously, tragically, Jesus unfolds who he's talking about. One in their midst, Judas, was not clean. And so, let me give you, this is my proposition, three truths about this foot washing (coughs) so that you would follow Jesus' example. The first is the illustration of the foot washing. I hope it's clear by now. Again, Jesus is not concerned about personal hygiene, although maybe Peter did have stinky feet. Maybe John did have some dogs that were barking. But the point here, based upon what Jesus is saying, the absence of this washing means no part with Jesus. There is a full cleansing that accompanies this foot washing, whatever this foot washing points to. This foot washing is akin to some kind of self-abasing service of sinners. This foot washing is an illustration, is a picture of Jesus pouring himself out on Calvary's hill. This foot washing is a picture of what Jesus will do later this week in serving sinners and meeting their greatest need in dying on the cross. This is what this points to. Again, it's, it's like the prophets of old who used their object lessons, who had their, their pictures. This foot washing and the pouring of the water out over the feet was a picture of Jesus pouring himself out as that suffering servant upon the cross. And so, when Jesus comes to Peter and he says to Peter, Peter, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part with me. What Jesus is saying here, if you don't let me serve you, you're going to hell, Peter. If you, don't let, if you don't humble yourself and allow me to serve you, Peter, there's no heaven for you. So friends, this is huge. Because there is a measure of humility that is required if we are going to let another serve us. I mean, we get that, right? You know, sometimes we're going through a hard time and struggling, overwhelmed, but... You don't want to display any weakness. And so nobody knows. Nobody can serve you. That's just old rank pride. Well, you know, pre-GPS days, when you're lost and your wife keeps saying, honey, why don't you pull over and ask for directions? Nah, we ain't lost. We're good. An hour more goes by. 
Why don't you want to ask for help? Good old-fashioned pride. Some of you, my friends, don't want Jesus to wash your feet because you don't think you're dirty. You don't think you're filthy. You don't think you need to be washed. But I tell you, not because I know all your dark and dirty secrets, but I tell you because I read my Bible and I know what the Bible says about all of us. We're all filthy. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Each of us serves the almighty, unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. And we serve with gusto. We're dirty. We don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Even the second commandment, we don't love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. We love ourselves a lot. But to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves, my friend, you need Jesus to wash you. And if you've never humbled yourself and abased yourself to let him wash you, you need to do so now. He's willing. You've been putting him off and everybody around you can smell you. Just let him wash you. He'll forgive you of all of it. He died upon the cross to absorb all of your sin so that you could stand before the holy God with clean body and clean feet. Trust in him. J.C. Ryle says, it is true of every Christian, of every rank and position. To each one, Christ says, if I wash you not, you have no part with me. <coughs> it is not enough that we are churchmen, professed communicants. We've been baptized and the like. The great question for everyone is this. Am I washed and justified? The common assertion that washing here spoken of is baptism seems to be unwarrantable. The great question is, are you washed? That is one strange irony, and I have to point it out because Bishop Rao pointed it out. Some people take this passage as baptism, as a picture of baptism. And usually this comes with those who are in a tradition of what is called sacerdotalism, that namely the sacraments or baptism and communion effectively imparts grace it is what saves. Baptism saves. Communion saves. The strange irony here is Jesus washed the feet of Judas just as well as the other, tw- other 11. My math is off a little bit. But yet, even though Judas's feet were washed by Jesus, his heart was as filthy as the devil himself. Ain't no ex opera operato. Ain't no sacraments that work regardless of the faith of the recipient. It's not true or else Judas would have been cleaned from the inside out. But tragically and sadly, he was not. And for the believer, Jesus amazingly says here to Peter, he says, Peter, when Peter says, well, 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 give me a shower, Jesus, Jesus says to Peter, no, basically, you've already had a shower. You just need your feet washed. In other words, you're already justified. You're already forgiven, but you're walking in this world and you're picking up sin and you just need the periodic foot washing. First Corinthians chapter six and verse nine, Paul warns the Corinthians, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers will inherit the kingdom of God. Anyone whose life is dominated by rebellion against God is not a Christian. But then he says in verse 11, Such were some of you, but you were what? Washed. You were justified. 
You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Paul tells the Corinthians that that you were former drunkards. You were former homosexuals. You were former adulterers. That's not who you are because you've been washed. You've been justified. You've been forgiven of it all. Fellow believer sitting here this morning, if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, I tell you on the authority of Jesus' words here in this passage and elsewhere, you are clean. You're forgiven. You're forgiven of it all. I don't know what kind of filthy, dark past you have, but if you've trusted in Jesus, he has borne the punishment of your hell that you deserve, and he has washed you clean. But also, if you are a Christian and trusting in Jesus, you also know the reality that none of us lives as we ought to. We don't follow Jesus as we ought to, and our feet are dirty. And that's what the Bible calls sanctification. Justification is where God pardons you, cleans you, acquits you of all your sin. But this business of sanctification is the reality that what you have been declared, you are not yet. And so we still need foot washings. We still got dirty feet. We still need to go to Jesus. In the words of 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. He promises to cleanse you, to wash your feet. Even though you've been justified, you still need to go to him and confess and he will forgive Again, Ryle says, it is well known that he who is washed needs only to wash his feet after a journey and is accounted clean entirely after such a partial washing. But this is far more true of the washing of pardon and justification. He who is pardoned and justified by me is entirely washed from all of his sins and only needs the daily forgiveness of the daily defilement he contracts in traveling through a sinful world. Once washed, justified, and accepted by me, ye are clean before God. So that's the illustration. That's what this is pointing to. So now you're thankful for Peter for sticking his foot in his mouth. Now you know. It wasn't just about personal hygiene. But also the motivation of the foot washing. I glossed over it on purpose because I want to punch it in right here. Did you notice in verse one of this chapter, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In other words, this is... This is This is John's preamble to what's going on here. John sets this up by telling us that Jesus is loving his own and he loved them so much to the end that this is what he's about to do. In other words, if we were to ask the question, why on earth would you get on hands and knees Go around the table and wash the feet of the disciples, Jesus. The answer from the eternal second person of the Trinity would be, I love those guys. I love them. I love them. Which is the same answer, why in heaven's name would you come from the Father as the eternal God in eternity past and come in space and time, clothe yourself in humanity, live in this cesspool of a world, die on a Roman cross, rise from the dead. Why why in heaven's name would you do that? Answer Jesus, I love those guys. He loves them, John records. He loves them to the end, the telos. Now, the fascinating thing here is this can be understood in two different ways. It could be understood in a temporal way. Jesus loved them to the very end, to his dying breath. 
Or it can mean that Jesus loved them completely, entirely. I think John, John often uses what is, for those of you who like English grammar words, this is a double entendre. I think John intentionally, as he often does, he has a twofold meaning here. It's, it's, you don't have to choose. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Jesus loved his disciples. That's why he washed their feet. That's why he died on the cross. It was love that motivated him. And again, wonder of wonders here. This is Jesus. Think about what John says and records about Jesus. Think of Jesus' own words in relationship to himself throughout this portrait in John that John is painting. How's it start out? I mentioned it already. John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. By Him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, Jesus is the eternal creator God. John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternal glorious God who's the creator of the world clothed himself in humanity and got down on hands and knees and washed the dirty feet of dirty sinners and all of this was a picture of him going to the cross in a public humiliating way and dying on that cross and doing it because he loved sinners. You see friends, don't misunderstand the storyline of the Bible the eternal second person of the Trinity did not divest himself of his godhood and then take upon humanity. No, his eternal godhood took upon an additional nature so that through the prism of his flesh we could see who this great God is. He is the God that serves sinners. It's the same portrait that Mark paints in Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. What God is there like this, friends? You could not even, in all the imagination of Tolkien times Lewis, invent such a God like this. but he is the God who is in reality. That is cause for rejoicing this morning that the absolute, eternal, unchanging God, wonder of wonders, is the God who serves sinners. And he does it out of love. This is the motivation behind it. Friend, Ephesians 3.17, the Apostle Paul waxes eloquent when he says, being rooted and grounded in love, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. He says that we may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul, are you talking out of both sides of your mouth? The love of, that he's writing this that you would know what you can't know. His point being is that, yes, we can know something of the love of Christ. No, oh, but there's a depth there. There's a wideness there that he would love sinners of all tongue, tribe, and nation. That he would love to the depths of sin, even the most rebellious, wicked, vile of sinners. That he would carry them to the heights of heaven. Samuel Rutherford, the English Puritan, said, he came to the very bottom of hell to scoop up me as his jewel. And he came below me in order to lift me. 
He came to the very bottom of hell to scoop up a jewel like me, and he came under me in order to lift me. And it was love that motivated that. And notice even the way in which John records this language. He loved his own who were in the world. I love that. His own. His own. We tend to value and love and cherish that which is our own, right? Why? Because it's our own, right? Maybe nobody else values it. Maybe everybody else looks at it. But when we look at it, we see it differently. Why? We own it. It's ours. And this is the strange irony here because John 1.11 says he came unto his own, but his own received him not. Yet to all who receive him, they become his children. These are his new own, the new creation, the new people of God. They are his own <coughs> because they are a love gift from the Father to the Son. This is what John tells us in, when Jesus says in John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Jesus' own, our love gift from the Father, chosen from eternity past and given to the Son. They're his own because, he says, in that same passage in John 6, I come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I lose nothing of all that the Father has given me. They are his own because he died for them by his blood on the cross. They are also his own because in space and time, the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, drew them to the Lord Jesus himself because John six forty four says... No one comes unto the Father, or no one comes unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him, his own whom he loves. Friend, do you enjoy that love of Christ? Jesus loves you to the uttermost, to the end. And he proved that when he washed his disciples' feet, and then later that week, served sinners, met you in your greatest need, which your greatest need is not your stinky feet, it's your stinky heart that needs clean, washed, forgiven. Well, that's the motivation of the foot washing. We saw the Illustration, the foot washing, it points us to the cross. The motivation is the love, Jesus' love for his own. And then third, the obligation of the foot washing. <coughs> now it's about to get painful. About to press it in. As they say in the South, now preacher, you, you ain't preaching, you meddling now. You meddling. We're about to meddle. Verse 11, for he knew... Jesus knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12. So when Jesus had washed their feet and taking his garments and reclined at the table again, (coughs) he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You guys get this? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right. I am your teacher and Lord. For so I am. Verse 14. If I then, Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Jesus is is using an argument here from the greater to the lesser. Okay, you guys, you call me teacher. You call me rabbi, right? Rabbis in this time period had tremendous respect from their students. You call me teacher, rabbi. You also call me Lord. I mean, that's a high title. 
And I, as your teacher and your Lord, have just gotten down on my feet and scrubbed your dirty, nasty feet. And you might think Jesus would say at this point, so guys, get your towels on and wash my feet. Right between the toes, right between the pinky toes. No, he doesn't say that. You guys, you wash one another's feet. And you can just imagine them looking over their shoulder. Because, by the way, the other Gospels record, right in this context, these guys were fighting. They were fighting amongst each other who was going to sit at Jesus' right hand. They were pulling for position. They were ready to step on each other right up to the top. And Jesus says, you see Peter's feet over there? Start washing. But then he goes on. The argument's not over just in case they didn't get it. Verse 15. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. This was an example. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Again, two arguments from the greater to the lesser. One who is sent is not greater than the one who sends him. The one who is a master or the one who is a slave is not greater than the master. (coughs) And so Jesus' argument here is that if I'm doing this to you, you also are obligated to do it to one another. And then verse 17, here's a whopper. If you do these things, you are blessed. I'm sorry, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Blessed. You're blessed, this this wonderful New Testament word, it comes up over and over. You're happy, contented. It's where we see in the Beatitudes, joyful, contented. In other words, friends, this is the happy road. Yes, scrubbing the toe jam of your fellow brothers and sisters is the happy road. You see, it doesn't feel like the happy road. But isn't this true? Some of the happiest people I've ever met are the most self-forgetful, self-giving people on planet Earth. And some of the most miserable people I've ever met in my track on planet Earth are the most self-absorbed, ungrateful, selfish people. That's how it works. But Jesus does not want us to divorce his washing our feet with us washing others' feet. In other words, friends, this is not mere moralism. It's immoral. You are obligated. Here's the morality. Wash others' feet. But it's not moralism because it's connected to Jesus' great washing of our feet on the cross. In other words, it is the grand story of the gospel of this great God humbling himself and washing your feet that obligates you to move out in sacrificial love towards others. It is the engine to motivate your service of others. And it is the happy road. And so, friend, how you doing at serving others? How you doing at forgetting yourself and pouring yourself out for others? Are you absorbed in your own schedule, your own agenda, and anytime anyone crosses that agenda, even though it may be a serving opportunity for you, you fly in a, fly off the handle in a rage. Because now I can't clean the house that I wanted to clean. You're in the way, child. But yet it's an opportunity to serve your child who sometimes needs a rebellious heart and needs pain inflicted to the battissimo. But yes, it's seemingly getting in a way of your agenda, but in that moment it is your agenda. He or she is your agenda. Friends, when you hear of serving opportunities that crop up within the church, a need here, a need there, is your impulse to say, well, somebody else will take care of that. I mean, that's why we pay Pastor Matt. 
Or is your impulse to say, here's an opportune moment to serve and love. How can I not? Because Jesus served me. When you hear even of, again, physical needs, maybe physical needs in the church, serving, and I know some of you, you excel at that. I saw men out in the parking lot shoveling snow, trying to get a car out of a snow embankment just this morning. And I know so often we throw out a serving opportunity and boom, 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 people ready to serve. But sometimes we need the proverbial kick in the pants. How about serving the spiritual needs of others? Sometimes we're a little bit too quick to pull up the pant leg of somebody else and say, whew, your feet dirty. You seen their feet over there? Then They've got some dirty feet. Not as much willing to get down on hands and knees and say, I see you got something on your boot. What am I talking about? Well, it's easy to point out the sins of others. Sometimes even disguised, oh, we need to pray for so-and-so. Pointing out the dirty feet of others, unwilling to courageously go and come alongside that person to help them to see and to clean that mud off their boot or maybe even the dog poo off their boots. Pink says, much exercise of soul, much judging of ourselves is needed for such lowly work as this. I have to get down to my brother's feet if I am to wash them. This means that the flesh in me must be subdued. <coughs> and then he quotes Galatians 6, 1, 2. Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Paul's saying, sometimes you get down to wash somebody's feet. And you might get a boot to the side of your head. They may not want that boot washed. They may fight. It's a job hazard of washing feet. But we should do it. How about the way you utilize your knowledge? I bless God for this congregation, their hunger for the word of God. I mean, that's why what brought most of you here, right? It's not because of my smashing good looks. You want fed Words of truth, words of life by the globs. You love theology. But friends, sometimes as the Apostle Paul said, knowledge puffs up. And we can take the towel of knowledge and shove it down people's throat like a Jack Bauer torture technique. Or, you know, remember, boys in the locker room, you dip the end of that towel. Yeah, take that. Hmm? I'm Calvinist over here. Yeah. You need to grow up and learn some theology. You start whipping that towel around. But that's not how Jesus wants us to use that gift of knowledge of his word that he entrusts to us he wants us to serve others with it to get down on hands and knees with sometimes with tears in our eyes and say oh but that you would believe this this wonderful truth about this great God who we serve So don't use that towel and basin to waterboard others with. Use it to wash feet. Chuck Colson, he was considered Richard Nixon's hatchet man in his unconverted years. 
he was in the Nixon administration and he went down in the Watergate scandal. And it was in the context of being behind a jail cell that God reached down and opened the eyes of Chuck Colson. Years later, he would write this. <coughs> Power is like salt water. He watched it firsthand, right? He was in the Nixon administration. Power is like salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. The lure of power can separate the most resolute of Christians from the true nature of Christian leadership, which is service of others. And then he says this powerful line. It is difficult to stand on a pedestal and to wash the feet of those below. If you're on your own pedestal, you need to get off, come low, and wash the feet of others. Let's pray.